pre-exposure prophylaxis, and uh, we've actually dedicated an hour to this session, uh, plus uh, questions and answers, and uh, this is going to be a case-based discussion. And our speaker is uh, Hyman Scott, who's an assistant clinical professor uh, in HIV, ID, and global medicine, University of California, uh, San Francisco. Uh, welcome, Dr. Scott. Good afternoon. And um, I'm excited that we have an hour to talk about um, PrEP and then answer some questions that, um, that folks might have. Um, so let's just go ahead and get started because we have quite a few cases we wanted to go through today. Right, so I have no uh, financial affiliations. And we hope to um, talk about some epi, um, talk about uh, the different scenarios for PrEP, and talk about the impact of STIs, and also uh, touch on U equals U. Uh, we do a lot of uh, education with our providers within the San Francisco Department of Public Health, where I'm actually primarily based. Um, both locally in San Francisco and in surrounding communities. And STIs continue to come up as a reason for people not wanting to offer PrEP. And so I wanted to make sure we touched on that. Um, so just to uh, review some of the CDC slides, and I really bring these up to highlight the uh, populations where we have the largest epidemic and where we're actually missing um, PrEP initiations and persistence. So um, two-thirds of all the new infections are among uh, MSM. And um, in the United States, it's predominantly among African-Americans and Latinx individuals, both for, for men and for women. And when the CDC has looked at the um, uptake of PrEP using pharmacy data, it's actually 70 to 75% white males. And that is not where the epidemic is in the United States, and so we have this large gap. And the concern is always that PrEP might exacerbate existing racial ethnic disparities, and then without a concerted effort, we won't uh, close those gaps, but we'll widen them. And um, as we see, essentially, that uh, PrEP uh, HIV infections are happening predominantly among millennials, so those under the age of 35, so ensuring that our efforts for outreach and structure of services meet the needs of a population. 10% um, are over the age of 55, so we um, can't ignore those individuals who are um, older, um, although the age of older keeps dropping down to 40 now in some places, some discussions, but just keeping in mind that we actually have to ensure that we're um, making sure our services are meeting the needs of uh, young people as well. And this is an epidemic predominantly um, in the South. We're going to talk about the, um, in the epidemic in the focus cities and the focus states. Um, but these are uh, graphs that many of you are familiar with, and your, most of your clinics are probably in one of these deep purple um, places. So the first uh, ARS question is um, about same-day PrEP initiation. So do you start PrEP on the same day or wait for test results before prescribing? So A is same day, B is wait, C is something else. About 41% suggest same day starts, and more than half wait for the test results, and 7% um, uh, would do something else. So I just wanted to highlight these data from New York City, where they uh, evaluated what happened when you started PrEP immediately um, versus waiting to start PrEP. 
And so the vast majority of individuals who started PrEP in their um, sexual health clinics did do so on the same day. And um, when they looked at chart reviews, if, if they had medical contraindications to PrEP or had lab results that uh, would have contraindicated them um, starting PrEP, only 0.3% had an absolute contraindication um, to have not started PrEP, and 0.4% had a relative contraindication. And the vast majority of those who um, delayed PrEP had no contraindication uh, to starting PrEP. And I think the sobering thing is that um, a very small proportion started PrEP later. So I think the take home away from this is if you have somebody in your office who is um, interested in PrEP and willing to take PrEP, having them come back is you're gonna lose a lot of people. And I think we've seen this in our clinical settings. I think when you refer people to outside places, that's another place where we can um, lose individuals. And then now we're starting to get more data that you can do this in a way where you just screen for acute HIV, any symptoms that individuals have, and then um, draw the labs, start PrEP, and then follow them up. And this does not put the patients at increased risk. All right, so shifting gears. When you prescribe PrEP, how do you prescribe it? Uh, one month with uh, a return for, and one month for refills, three months um, asking the patients to come back for refills, three months uh, with refills, 12 months, or the sky's the limit. So uh, the vast majority would give three months with requiring the patient to come back in for refills. Um, and so about a quarter would actually require the patient to come back every month before giving refills. Um, so let's go through the Goldilocks problem with PrEP prescribing. So um, this is something that we've looked at in our clinics, and it's the balance of giving um, sufficient quantities so that individuals don't have um, difficulty with adherence and persistence. And uh, when we looked at our primary care providers, we found that um, prescriptions associated with 30 days or less were actually associated with a higher rate of PrEP discontinuation, which is not that um, surprising. However, when uh, we did look at um, what the testing was for individuals who were on PrEP, um, only about two-thirds had HIV testing um, in follow-up, um, even when we made the sort of intervals more um, forgiving at four months. And we had actually about 20% of people who actually never had HIV testing. So it's not um, prep in the wild, but we do want to provide people with the options um, and to create some flexibility. And then we also looked at some panel management strategies. Um, we've also been evaluating the idea of um, having people uh, use telemedicine, so just come in for labs without requiring them to come in for, um, for follow-up visits, but creating some flexibility, um, but the requirements for follow-up testing I think are essential, um, but just ensuring that we don't um, hamstring our patients um, in being able to continue um, on PrEP. So question number two. Uh, Case number one, so it's a 21-year-old woman who um, asked uh, for PrEP. She says she always uses condoms with her sex partners but would like to stop using them. So what do you recommend? Um, you don't offer PrEP because condoms have worked well for her. Um, you don't want to risk STIs. Uh, you don't offer PrEP because it doesn't work well in women. Um, you offer PrEP but tell her it works less well if she has BV. Um, you offer PrEP and counsel her that condoms will prevent STIs um, but leave it up to her. 
Great. So you offer prep and counsel that only condoms will prevent STIs, but leave the condom decision up to her. So that is absolutely the um, most patient-centered and correct answer, I would say. So just to review the CDC guidelines for heterosexual um, women, so um, these are the summary from the 2017 update, and um, heterosexual women and men are in the center. Um, and I'd just like to highlight that the in a high HIV prevalence area or network is an indication for PrEP. So it's a recognition that even despite uh, low individual risk, if somebody's in a high prevalence or area or network, that, that alone could be an indication. And I think it might go a long way to destigmatizing PrEP for, is only for individuals who are at high risk, and that by offering PrEP, we're somehow um, subjecting that individual to a label around their high-risk sexual behavior. And the question often comes up, actually, given some of the studies around PrEP efficacy in women about does it really work in women? So this is from AVAC, and um, it uh, plots on this, uh, on the x-axis is a percentage of participants who had detectable drug levels, so essentially adherence, with high adherence on the right, and then effectiveness with um, high adherence uh, at the top. And so in the upper right corner are um, many of the MSM, uh, studies among MSM, so these are um, the Ypergay uh, study and, part, and not part, PROUD, um, which hold, showed both high adherence um, and high effectiveness. Um, and then there's uh, IPREX in the middle at about 44% efficacy. Um, and then in heterosexual cis, uh, discordant couples, um, there actually was a very high efficacy um, and there was also high adherence in those studies. And then there are several studies of um, heterosexual women where there was no efficacy or actually negative e efficacy um, in the voice trials, one of the arms of the voice trial, which has led many people to ask the question of does PrEP work in women, but I think this highlights that there's a linear uh, impact on a effectiveness based on adherence, and the adherence was very low in those studies. And understanding what the context of why those women um, did not take PrEP in those studies, I think is gonna give us a lot of insight into how to roll PrEP out in general. So um, to look at this question, there's been several meta-analyses that have sort of tried to answer this, and um, this is a, a result of a meta-analysis meta that indicates that if it's taken regularly, yes, that PrEP does work, that uh, adherence and efficacy estimates might be different than among men as effects with men or individuals who have a, a exposure via anal intercourse, um, but that you can see in the bottom with higher adherence that the risk ratio, relative risk, is actually um, closer to about 75% reduction in HIV acquisition risk. Um, there are some PK data that uh, indicate that there's 10 to 100-fold um, lower uh, levels of tenofovir in vaginal and cervical tissue compared with rectal tissue, um, and that tenofovir is cleared more rapidly um, from vaginal than rectal tissue. And so that more, uh, more adherence or higher adherence is required, may be required for women. Um, PrEP is very forgiving for MSM with four doses per week being associated with high adherence and is likely less forgiving um, for women. So higher adherence to maximize efficacy is, is essential. All right, so case two. This is a 34-year-old uh, man, MSM, has sex with new partners approximately twice per month. He doesn't want to take a daily pill because his sexual exposures are relatively infrequent, um, but he also doesn't want to use condoms. What would you do? Encourage him to use condoms. Uh, his exposure is relatively low, so he doesn't even, actually even worry about PrEP. Encourage him to take PrEP daily. Um, have him start PrEP seven days before he plans to have sex. Or prescribe uh, on-demand, or what's sometimes referred to as 2-1-1 PrEP, even though it's not FDA-approved. Oh, you know so 
Great. So uh, the, more than half suggested on-demand prep, even though it's not FDA approved. 38% um, would counsel to take prep daily, and 6% would suggest either starting seven days before or um, encouraging to use condoms. So I'll touch on all of those. So Ypergay, which has one of the um, best names in our PrEP trials, um, is really about taking PrEP two to 24 hours before anticipated sex. So um, thinking about um, if somebody's able to plan or become very creative in delaying sex if, uh, they, if the opportunity presents itself. And then taking uh, one pill 24 hours and then 24 hours after that. And then if there's more sex, there's more pills. And so this 2-1-1 can become 2 one 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 um, depending on uh, you know what type of weekend it was, and so um, this is something that we found has been really appealing for individuals who are not interested in taking a daily pill. If they have sex a couple of times or a few times a month, um, they don't want to be on necessarily on a daily pill, even when they're not having sex. So um, these are the data that support this from Ypergay. So um, this is a large trial that was done in um, in France in French-speaking Canada. Um, and it had a very high incidence um, in the placebo arm of about six um, HIV infections per 100 person years. And it had a 97% relative reduction ratio versus placebo. So um, it has a, um, a very low uh, number needed to treat as well. And um, the median number of pills that were taken in this trial were about 18. But the question came out is that the men in this trial were uh, having a lot of sex. And the question came up in this scenario, if somebody's having less frequent sex, does this actually um, protect? And so um, in the overall Ypergay trial, they had about 10 um, sex acts per month and took about 15 pills um, during that time. In the sub-analysis, there was about um, half the frequency of sex um, and slightly lower, uh, but not quite half, the um, number of pills taken. So even though their person years of follow-up was much smaller, they actually did not see any um, HIV infections in those who were on this regimen with less frequent sex reported, and the incidence was similar to the placebo arm overall. So it does provide data and suggestion that this actually does work for individuals who have sex less frequently, um, and that the impact in Ypergay was not just because people were taking a lot of pills anyway, because they were having a lot of sex, so they were essentially on um, daily prep with low ad lower adherence. So um, the CDC currently recommends um, daily prep only. Um, it's only licensed by the FDA for this indication. IASUSA does um, support to recommend 211 um, as an alternative to daily prep. And um, daily prep, uh, for some of the reasons we talked about, is um, only recommended option for cis women and people who inject drugs. I think that for trans women who are having anal sex only, that um, 211 um, would be an option. It's not something that's been studied. There, were, there are very few to no trans women in the Ypergay trials, um, but we don't have any um, suggestion that the uh, PK would be any different for trans women. Um, although there may be some implications for um, gender-affirming hormones, so there's a lot to consider because uh, we do know that about 30% reduction in tenofovir levels um, that occur um, with some of the uh, gender-affirming hormones. So um, we have had a lot of um, efforts to uh, evaluate whether 211 might be effective in increasing uptake. And in one of our sexual health clinics, it's actually often offered even-handedly to patients who are coming in act access prep. And there's about 30% of individuals who decide that that's the primary option that they want to use. And then they actually subsequently flip to daily 
and then flip back. And some individuals on daily decide that they want to do 211 depending on um, their seasons of risk. So um, this is how we sort of think about it. Um, so who can use PrEP uh, daily in 211? So daily PrEP is really for anyone. And 211 has only been studied in MSM um, for chronic Hep B. Um, daily can be safely used, but 211 can trigger a flare. Um, there is some planning that's required for 211 um, versus daily, where there's really um, no planning needed. Um, and this idea of forgiveness. So 211 is um, less forgiving or not forgiving compared to daily prep, um, which has more forgiveness, particularly for MSM. All right, so question three. 48-year-old uh, MSM with hypertension comes in requesting PrEP. Um, he has multiple partners, uh, frequent sex and frequent STIs. His creatinine is uh, 1.7 and creatinine clearance is 61. What would you do? Uh, prescribe daily TDF, prescribe daily TAF, prescribe every other, TD, every other day TDF, prescribe 211 TDF, um, tell him to use condoms. So um, just wanted to re uh, review some of the um, renal effects um, of, t of, of Truvada or TDF. I think with the approval of TAF that there's been a um, reevaluation of some of our approaches to using TAF both in treatment and also as we consider how or if we're going to use this for um, PrEP given um, the data now that we have from the DISCOVER trial, which I'll touch on in a second. So just to step back and look at the um, renal effects of TDF. Um, in Olay and in the Kaiser study that um, there was a risk for uh, renal, uh, negative renal effects, um, particularly if the EGFR was less than 70, um, if somebody had a baseline EGFR that started out below 90, or if they were um, older, so over the age of 40 or 50 years old. Um, in Partners Prep and Partners Demo, um, that there was um, uh, no difference in renal effects in follow-up testing. Um, that most of the creatinine uh, clearance changes were um, are transient um, and not confirmed later. And in the Thai IDU study, they actually saw no effect on um, creatinine um, and that this seemed to be age um, dependent. And when stopping PrEP, the creatinine often reverted back to baseline. And in both clinical, I think our clinical experience and in the trials, rechallenging individuals has often been successful. Um, and so Ypres-Gay actually has looked at this idea is, is, um, is fewer, lower exposure to TDF associated with lower risk of having a EGFR change. And the bottom line was yes, if you had fewer than 15 pills in the Ypres-Gay study, um, you had a lower change in your EGFR compared to those who, had, um, who were taking it more regularly, which is not that surprising. Um, and now we have DISCOVER. So DISCOVER trial was a trial of uh, about 5,000 MSM in the US, um, Canada, and Europe. And um, two caveats to the DISCOVER trial is that it really under-recruited African-Americans. There was very low proportion of uh, African-Americans in the trial, and there were very few trans women. Um, and there were, of course, no, um, no cis women in this trial. 
But this was a non-inferiority trial, and it met its non-inferiority um, benchmarks. Um, as you can see, there were um, 15 infections in the um, TDF arm and seven infections in the TAF arm. And so the, um, it met its non-inferiority um, uh, outcome for the primary. There was no difference in um, adverse events um, at, or adverse events that led to discontinuation. They also looked at the renal safety data. Um, this is 48-week data. 96-week data actually just came out from the um, study in Europe, which essentially shows um, the same findings. Um, but there was a small difference in uh, EGFR calculations for the TDF arm versus the TAF arm. And if you look at the, um, um, the percentage and the changes, these are you know, coming to like two or three creatinine clearance points. Um, with a group that's young and has a creatinine clearance that's high. So um, the clinical relevance of this, I think, is questionable. Um, and they did not see um, any um, serious difference between discontinuations. The other aspect of DISCOVER, which is now coming out in the 96-week data, is that there was a 1.7 kilogram weight gain in the TAF arm and a 0.5 kilogram weight gain in the TDF arm. So um, when I'm counseling my patients on potential side effects, I also include the fact that weight gain is higher in the TAF arm compared to TDF, which has um, some impact on whether or not they want to uh, switch. Uh, so this is the data from, uh, from IPREX that looked at what was the uh, incidence among individuals based on the number of doses um, that they took per week. This is based on dry blood spots, so these are average doses in a month. And that essentially, if um, somebody was taking seven pills a week, that estimated efficacy was 99%. If it was four pills a week, it was 96%. Um, and if there were two pills a week, the estimated efficacy is still um, 76%. So um, remember overall in, IP in uh, IPREX that the uh, efficacy was about 44%. Um, but this is the forgiveness that uh, TDF has for, um, for MSM. And the question that I wanted to also touch on was this um, STIs and the efficacy of PrEP. So in several um, RCTs, there's been no evidence that having more um, uh, STDs was associated with a decrease in the efficacy of PrEP. Um, and that was both in IPREX and in Partners PrEP. And in open-label studies in PROUD, um, there was no difference in the efficacy of PrEP. In the um, PrEP demo study, there's no efficacy um, change from PrEP. And what I tell providers is that if you're not seeing a lot of STIs, you're not reaching the right population. Um, that we are, we are seeing this resurgence in STIs, um, and I think that there's this desire to attach that resurgence to PrEP, but it actually predated PrEP. Um, in San Francisco, we've seen this decoupling of the HIV epidemic from the STI epidemic. So we've seen a rise in STIs before PrEP was available, even as we saw a decline in our HIV diagnoses. Um, and that with, uh, with increased screening and with um, reaching the populations who might not be coming in for regular testing, that we're going to be seeing a lot of STIs. So the opportunity to diagnose and treat STIs actually some, from some modeling data suggests that we could reduce um, incidence of chlamydia and gonorrhea 
by 30 to 40 percent just by more frequent screening and treatment of asymptomatic infections. Um, and so I think we should expect to see STIs um, if we're reaching a sexually active population that has a risk for HIV. Um, and that we have been able to turn the curve in HIV with the use of PrEP in many places because we have PrEP to be able to do that. And that we also need to consider what is, what are the, what's needed for STIs. And, you know, we have some studies that are looking at doxycycline as impact on syphilis and chlamydia. There's a vaccination that might um, have some efficacy for gonorrhea. And so thinking about what are the biomedical interventions that we might need for STIs in addition to PrEP and not allow concerns about STIs to undermine our efforts to get PrEP to those who might most benefit. And so um, this is some data that's looked at um, the effect of PrEP on STIs. So um, the bacterial STIs are increasing over time, um, but to highlight that this predated PrEP um, and that um, there is some risk, com risk compensation among individuals who are on PrEP. Um, for a lot of individuals who have risk for HIV, their primary driver for condom use is concern about HIV, and if PrEP um, alleviates that concern and then anxiety, which I think has positive sexual health impacts, um, that there might, there's likely going to be less uh, condom use. Um, so we suggest um, recommending screening every three months. I actually have some patients who I screen every month. I write standing orders and tell them just come in and get tested um, and treated. And those are also some people I might consider offering doxy to. Um, and so thinking about how we can actually turn the curve for STIs um, and not use it as a reason not to prescribe PrEP, which I think is, is happening. All right, so switching um, to case four. So it's a 29-year-old MSM in a zero-different relationship um, with the um, with the HIV-positive partner who comes in requesting PrEP. Um, he explains his partner is fully virally suppressed. Um, he's been for over a year, um, but he would feel more comfortable being on PrEP. So would you prescribe PrEP? Prescribe it for now with the hope of eliminating in the future. Tell the patient he doesn't need PrEP because you equals you. And what is you equals you? So 71% um, suggest prescribing PrEP, um, 25 would prescribe now with the hopes of eliminating in the future if this partner remains suppressed. Um, tell him doesn't, 4% suggest he doesn't need PrEP because you equals you. Um, so I think the right answer is um, prescribe PrEP. Um, this question stem didn't get too much into the weeds. Um, but I think that even with it, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the U equals U data, um, but um, there were HIV infections in both HPTN 502 as well as in the um, partners prep and some of the other trials so that there are outside partners that patients have and that the request for prep might be an indication about that even if it's not explicitly stated and I will say that most providers are, are probably not explicitly asking about it so we take the approach if somebody's asking for prep then we give them prep because there's probably something going on that they're not telling you um, and that they're trying to be proactive um, so I think that um, the seasons of risk is something that's talked about. So does somebody have risk now, and then does that risk change later? 
I live in San Francisco, it's always spring. And so we try to take people where they are and understand that there might be times where they don't think that they're at risk, and that, um, but they truly still have um, risk going on. And that um, objective, um, subjective self-assessments of risk among MSM is universally poor. Um, and so when, whenever we compare objective measurements to what individuals perceive their risks are, that there's a tremendous discordance. And we've seen eight, we've seen eight HIV um, infections among our PrEP cohorts who have discontinued PrEP. And when we've talked to them, uh, many of them felt like they were no longer at risk for PrEP. And so we have to um, balance patient-centered approaches with the um, reality that we want to encourage individuals to use all the tools um, that they have at their disposal. And PEP is underused as well, so not to forget about um, PEP. And most of our PrEP clinics are also PEP clinics now because you're going to identify individuals who have risk um, who either discontinued PrEP or are trying to initiate it. All right, so uh, just a quick overview, 052. I'm sure everyone's uh, well aware of this. Um, and so there were um, three infections in the immediate arm and uh, 43 in the delayed arm um, with the efficacy of 93%. Um, I love to show this data because these were the um, couple studies that looked at um, MSM and provided um, the data for us to really um, push U equals U. In the bottom, there is um, zero, zero, zero. Like there are very few trials where we have seen and for prevention zero, zero, zero. Not even the PrEP trials, there were infections in all the PrEP trials. Um, and so this is a powerful statement that I use with my patients to say that if you are virally suppressed for, um, you know, at least on treatment for at least six months and virally suppressed continually, you can use condoms for pregnancy and STI prevention, but you do not need to use condoms for HIV prevention. And that is an evidence-based statement that we can tell our patients that many, for many is a transformative. And so um, I think that the, the slowest uptake of that type of acceptance has actually been among, among providers. Um, and that's been our experience in our, um, in our clinical settings. And so really supporting the data that there, there are no other studies that I know of for HIV prevention that have zeros across the board, not even the PrEP trials. So um, this is a statement that CDC has put out. Um, many jurisdictions have also sort of signed on to this. City and County of San Francisco has done so as well. Um, and I like to also highlight condom effectiveness. I think there's a lot of approach for um, supporting condoms, um, and uh, condoms are an important tool for people to use. Um, but their efficacy and effectiveness among heterosexuals is about 71 to 77 percent. And then among MSM, um, it was about 70% effective. So this Jade's article in 2015, I think one important insight to this is this is 100% condom use. This is not 99, 98, or 95. Because if there was not 100% condom use, this is all self-report, it was as effective as not using condoms at all. And so when we think about um, what somebody's perception of their risk is, 95% versus 100 doesn't seem like a big difference. But in the clinical trials that were used to, um, to devise these data, it actually was associated with no protection um, in, um, in HIV acquisition. And then the last point I wanted to make about this is um, there's still a lot of desire to, um, to counsel individuals. So in the absence of PrEP, counseling about um, risk reduction um, does not work. Does not work for MSM, 
does not work for heterosexual individuals. There is both observational and now randomized controlled clinical trial data that when you provide counseling for risk reduction, uh, risk reduction counseling alone um, did not uh, reduce S subsequent STI acquisition. And that for MSM in the study called AWARE that was published in JAMA, there was actually a 15% increase in STI acquisition for MSM. So not only does it not work, it actually may, might be doing harm for MSM. And so I think um, it's a study I like to highlight because I think it shows that we have this attachment to doing some things that might actually not be working. Um, and then when we look at, um, this is a study that was presented at CROI, um, not this past year, but the year before, that PrEP use actually among um, HIV negative partners of our patients um, in our HIV clinics is actually quite low. And so we've made the effort to try to uh, encourage our patients who are living with HIV, if they have HIV negative partners, to, um, to refer them in actually as a sort of um, peer referral in for our uh, clinic for accessing PrEP. Um, so I think we have this tremendous um, unmet need in a population that potentially our patients whose partners are uninfected um, might be able to access. And um, for U equals U, um, you know, the question comes up is like, are you actually you? Um, and this is uh, data that was presented in CROI um, and looked at self-reported versus actual viral load data um, among uh, men who stated that they were uh, undetectable. And that 53% um, of those who um, said that they were undetectable actually were undetectable um, versus um, the remainder who actually were not based on dry blood spot. So I think that it gives us some pause around um, engagement in care and, um, and the impact on self-report versus actual um, viral load um, data. All right, so um, question case five. This is a 28-year-old HIV-negative woman who's in a serodifferent relationship with HIV-positive man. He's newly diagnosed, newly diagnosed and not yet stably viral suppressed, and they want to have a baby. So what do you recommend? Uh, wait for the male partner to become virally suppressed um, for six months. Use PrEP, it's safe periconception and in pregnancy. Don't use PrEP, it's safety is unknown. Use sperm washing instead, or do something else. So 65% say use PrEP, it's safe periconception. 32% um, would uh, wait till the partner is biosuppressed um, for at least six months. Um, so I'd just like to highlight the um, fact that um, HIV risk um, increases during pregnancy. So these are some data from um, uh, uh, 2,700 HIV-infected uh, women in Africa. Um, who are in zero different relationships and were followed um, through two different HIV prevention studies. Um, they had frequent testing for HIV as well as pregnancy. Um, and similar to our, um, the uh, U equals U uh, studies I showed, they linked genetically the HIV infections. Um, and so the graph on the right, I just wanted to um, highlight in the, in the black is those who were non-pregnant. And then in the darker, the light gray to darker gray, it actually goes from early pregnancy to late pregnancy, 
to peripartum, and that it's um, compared to non-pregnant women, um, early pregnancy was associated with higher, and then that in, that risk actually increased over time, and that um, even after conception, the risk of HIV acquisition um, actually continued to rise. And so I think um, really appreciating that it's not just the process of conception, but actually ongoing risk that many of these women are going to be at um, if their partners are not virally suppressed, um, and that using PrEP throughout the pregnancy is actually um, likely going to be necessary in order to, to prevent um, subsequent acquisition even after the periconception period. So um, safety in pregnancy has um, become a big question. Um, so there um, has been limited data, but this was a, a study of 30 women who became pregnant while on PrEP um, compared to 96 women who were not exposed to PrEP. Um, there was no difference in miscarriage, um, congenital anomalies, or growth through one year of infancy, and that um, there were slightly lower z-scores for length and head circumference um, at early on, but non-significant at one year. Um, I think with a lot of the um, concern about the role of um, dolutegravir and neural tube defects, um, I think there's going to be a lot more review of data as PrEP has been rolled out in demonstration projects. Um, but we don't have any evidence that um, PrEP is associated with TDF is associated with um, worsening um, birth outcomes for um, pregnant women. So um, we do offer PrEPception, so use, use of PrEP around periconception, but also um, highlight the need to often continue this beyond um, the delivery because even the postpartum period, if the if the uh, if the partner is not virally suppressed, that that's actually the highest risk. Um, for uh, subsequent acquisition of HIV. All right, so case number six. Um, so it's a 35-year-old uh, MSM in a serodifferent relationship, comes in seeking PrEP. Um, he uh, says his partner has been unsuppressed and he's just starting a new regimen. He had a change in his regimen because of resistance and he's pretty sure it's M184V. Um, he doesn't like condoms, so what do you recommend? They should continue to use condoms until the partner is virally suppressed for at least six months. You prescribe TDF or TAF. Uh, you prescribe three-drug PEP, or you do something else. So 60% of people were uh, comfortable prescribing TDF or TAF, but a quarter would prescribe PEP, um, and 12% um, would suggest continue to use condoms, and 4% something else. So um, there are breakthrough infections that happen in PrEP, even at 99%, um, with the number of people who um, are starting PrEP, we expect to see some failures or PrEP breakthroughs. Now, the um, I think one of the things that has happened in the community is that when individuals have had this sort of breakthrough prep, um, breakthrough infections, that there's been a lot of public shaming of those individuals, that they actually just weren't taking it, that this was bad adherence, and that um, prep actually um, is 100% and never fails. Um, so these are some data that have looked at um, adherence measures um, that showed uh, high adherence. So 
Um, this was in Lancet HIV um, 2018, and the one at the top was the case that was reported in that study, um, and um, there was high levels by both DBS and hair, segmental hair analyses, um, and that the, the trials, uh, sorry, the um, cases below those, one of the commonalities is actually the M184V, and um, I think that there can be some debate about whether that's emergent resistance, if somebody has a breakthrough infection and is on TDF-FTC, um, that M184V can um, arise pretty quickly. Um, but I think that in the context of these other mutations that are there, that there's likelihood that these are transmitted um, infections, and particularly the one at the top that actually was mapped to a case in the San Francisco area. Um, who had the exact same resistance, and there was sexual uh, contact um, about two to three weeks before this person was diagnosed. Um, and so um, it raises the specter of how do we manage PrEP in the, in the situation when a, a patient's primary or um, partner, for example, who they would know about um, has an M184V. Um, and so we don't have any great guidance on this. This is something that we um, encounter, thankfully, relatively infrequently. Um, but it is somebody that um, I would offer PrEP with TDF-FTC um, um, or potentially offer um, PEP early on if this person is going to be, primary partner is going to be virally suppressed uh, quickly. So I think this has to take a patient-centered approach in management, but I think PEP would be an option. Um, in, addition, in addition to PEP. All right, so case seven, this 29-year-old woman um, in a serial different relationship who would like to stop using condoms, her partner's not probably suppressed, um, and she wants to know how long she has to take PrEP before she is protected. What do you tell her? Three days, seven days, 21 days, 28 days, um, I have no idea. percent suggest I wanted to say this looks like the middle finger that uh, Dr. Sag was talking about yesterday. Uh, 21 days, um, about 45 percent um, for seven days. So um, there's some data that so the PK so these are based on um, PK data um, that is looking at um, you know how long does it take for levels to reach um, um, concentrations that have been associated with protection um, in peripheral blood mononuclear cells, um, which would be the targets for HIV infection. Um, and so at about seven days, um, uh, you achieve about 89% um, in PBMCs and about 98% by the 13th dose, so it's about 14 days. Um, and so given that we um, know that um, other PK data suggests that um, rectal tissues have 100 to um, 10 to 100 uh, fold higher concentrations than, um, than in vaginal and cervical tissue. Um, the recommendation for MSM is approximately seven days um, and then continuing it 28 days after based on these uh, PK data. I think that the Ypergay data suggests that these correlates of likely protection might not actually be accurate because uh, if that was the case, then the Ypergay regimens would not work. They were only taking it for two days afterwards. 
um, uh, but they did have a loading dose, and so that was higher than um, than is sort of standard uh, what we use. So um, currently for women, it's recommended for 21 days, um, but we're um, sort of working towards a consensus that seven days might be adequate, um, but that there likely needs to be more uh, higher adherence to maintain uh, high levels of efficacy compared to men um, with uh, four to seven days doses for men to uh, have protection and six to seven doses for women. So I think that our bottom line is that we suggest seven days for, um, for men and uh, 21 days for women, but that, that likely is um, an overestimate of the length that it actually takes for somebody to be protected. So switching to case eight, this is a 35-year-old woman, a transgender woman who reports that she has infrequent condomless sex and is reluctant to start PrEP because she believes that it will interfere with her gender-affirming hormones. How do you counsel her? You tell her we have data that PrEP does not affect hormone levels and encourage PrEP. You tell her we don't know if PrEP affects hormone levels, but still encourage PrEP. You tell her we don't know if PrEP affects hormone levels, nor do we know if it works for trans women because there have been few trans women in trials and encourage condoms. You recommend two-on-one PrEP so she has less PrEP exposure. Six percent said we tell her that would tell her that um, we have data that prep does not affect hormone levels and encourage prep use. So um, I think that um, that is the correct answer. Um, and there have been several uh, PK data uh, studies of um, of uh, trans women comparing them to MSM. And um, the bottom line from the small studies that have been done, there's uh, two additional studies that are ongoing. We hope to have some data for. Um, probably presented at CROI or IAS next year, um, but essentially that um, that PrEP does not impact uh, hormone levels among uh, trans women, um, and that um, hormones do reduce PrEP levels, but only um, slightly, and they still maintain above what we estimate to be the protective levels. And so it's about a 10 to 15, 10 to 30 percent decrease in PrEP levels um, that uh, we see with gender-affirming uh, gender hormones in the um, trials that have been done so far. Um, this is an example of one of them um, that was done out of John Hopkins. Um, and so we, these are for daily PrEP, so we have no idea of how this might impact those who are on um, on-demand PrEP, so 211, because um, exposure is likely going to be lower in 211. And, um, and we don't know that if that reduction that you would see from gender-forming hormones might negatively impact efficacy of 211. So this is what we use to counsel um, trans women um, who are interested in PrEP if they don't want to um, start daily PrEP, uh, <clears throat> because it is something that, that it, for a lot of individuals who don't want to take a daily pill, 211 um, does offer another option. Um, so in IPREX, there were about uh, 339 participants who identified as, as trans women. Um, and uh, similar to uh, MSM, if there was detectable tenofovir in the blood, um, there was no infections among uh, those women. However, um, detectable levels was actually quite low um, at 18% among that group. 
um, and that uh, many trans women express concerns about these interactions. Um, and I think this is an interesting question as we try to answer this because this came from the community, this came from trans women um, who expressed these concerns. Um, and now that we're starting to get some of the data to answer those uh, questions that have been raised to us. Um, and then, um, there's, as I mentioned, there are several studies that are going on. Um, hopefully we'll have additional data in the next couple of months um, to support uh, PrEP uptake among uh, trans women. All right, case nine. So you have a 31-year-old uh, patient on PrEP who comes in for his routine quarterly lab tests. Um, his fourth-generation antibody test comes back positive, uh, but the confirmatory test and viral load come back negative. What do you do? So you repeat the test, but continue PrEP as you assume the fourth gen was false positive. You repeat the test and stop PrEP, but start ART for acute HIV infection. You repeat the test and stop PrEP until you can determine what the infection status is, or you do something else. Great, okay, so um, have a spread here. So 40% would repeat the tests and stop PrEP um, and start ART. About 36% would repeat um, but continue PrEP and 21% uh, would um, stop PrEP and repeat the tests um, so you can determine what the HIV infection status is. So um, all three of those options are um, things that we encounter um, quite routinely when we have these false positive tests. Um, and so just a, um, a recap of the, um, the FEBIG stages, and so from uh, acute infection, um, where you would have a negative um, HIV antibody test and a viral load, um, and um, after about uh, FEBIG two to three, um, you start to have um, antibodies develop and uh, detectable on some of our, um, our more uh, sort of third and fourth gen um, antibody tests. So this is how we approach um, ambiguous HIV test results um, among our PrEP patients. So um, this is um, adapted from John uh, Michelle Molina, um, who gave a presentation about this at um, CROI. Um, so with the quarterly HIV PrEP screening, um, we have a, a positive screening test, and um, we want to confirm the um, presence or absence of infection by repeating the tests. So um, we use serologic testing and RNA testing, and we actually recommend using another manufacturer's test um, for that repeat testing, um, if that's available. And then how do you manage any antiretroviral drugs? So there are three primary options. You can continue PrEP, particularly if they were adherent. Um, it maintains protection, but actually increases um, the risk of resistance if somebody actually truly is infected. Um, you can stop PrEP, which would facilitate the diagnosis, but you actually, if they aren't infected and they're still at risk, then they might actually acquire an infection during that time um, when they're off uh, PrEP. And um, you could start ART, um, but um, you, know, you might have drug-related AEs. I think this is less of an issue with our highly tolerable regimens now. 
um, but it might make confirming the diagnosis um, more difficult. So um, we've gone down all three of these depending on what the patient preferences are. So I think a lot of this is actually driven by the patients and how comfortable they feel with either abstinence um, if they were, if you're going to stop a, uh, PrEP um, to reassess HIV status um, and the risk of, um, of what that diagnosis might have for them and what it might mean for them if you start ART um, and plan to continue that ongoing. Um, and so I think that um, however you get to that um, decision about whether to continue PrEP um, or stop PrEP, but I think all these are options and that just because you have a, a, false, a positive HIV test doesn't mean that um, you have to stop PrEP. Just a reminder that there is a CDC um, PEP line, PrEP line, um, which is available um, during the day um, for sort of adjudicate, help adjudicating these cases. So um, we get cases from all over the country. There's actually a case in DC of exactly this, and the decision actually was to stop PrEP for um, as they try to assess the HIV status because that was what um, fit best for the for the patient. So I'm just going to turn to a little bit about the future of PrEP. Um, so uh, what is the most exciting, uh, what is most exciting to you uh, about the future of PrEP? Uh, long-acting injectable cabotegravir, long-acting injectable ropivirine, um, oral uh, FDA or MK8591, broadly neutralizing antibodies, vaginal rings, or Mirabarox. So that here and hopefully um, very near future when we have uh, injectable cabotegravir for treatment um, seems like the most uh, exciting. So um, just to recap some of the future of PrEP of what's going on. So we have um, the depriverine ring studies uh, which um, are working their way through the European um, equivalent of the FDA for approval. So they showed early efficacy of the depriverine ring. Um, in um, the trials, it was about 30%, but in the open-label extension, it's actually higher. This is the prevention efficacy that we often see, and this has been seen in PrEP as well. Um, and there's an evaluation of multi-purpose technology, so combining um, PrEP with um, contraception and anti-STD, um, and then looking at some rectal douches as well, which are um, under, under development. Um, the long-acting ART um, options include um, cabotegravir, which is being evaluated in two large trials um, in the HIV prevention trials network, HPT and OA3 and OA4. Um, I think that it is, there is no magic bullet, I think is the uh, bottom line about all of the PrEP approaches. So um, this is for individuals who, uh, if it shows efficacy, um, it does require uh, taking a daily pill for a period of time. Um, there is this very long pharmacologic tail that actually seems to be um, longer in women um, than in men and, um, and can persist for well over a year. Um, and that um, there may need to be um, other agents um, and other methods of delivery, including implants, which might be able to be removed. Um, and the MK8591 is one of those um, options that's being evaluated for 
um, sort of implants. Um, there are, uh, so looking at HIV vaccine, um, I think this has been some interesting, exciting work in the clinical trials. So there's two efficacy trials now in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, there is one um, trial now since I submitted these slides, they've actually started enrollment. The first enrollment was actually in Houston um, of an AD26 uh, HIV vaccine. Um, and so there is real hope that if one of the trials in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, shows efficacy, that it would be approved. Um, by the regulators in, uh, South, in South Africa. Um, and then passive vaccination with uh, monoclonal antibodies is uh, being evaluated. Um, there's a large uh, efficacy trial in Sub-Saharan Africa and one in North and South America called the AMP trial um, that uses broadly neutralizing antibodies that are infused or injected. Um, we were a site for uh, this trial, and I think there's a lot of concern up front about whether um, this is focused on MSM and trans individuals. So it's one of the first trials that's actually open to trans men. Um, and there was real concern about whether people would actually come in and do this. And universally, it was um, so, there was so much interest in it that um, we almost ran out of study product. So they actually had to slow the trial down because there was so much interest in the community um, for this. And I think a lot of it was driven by the availability of PrEP and people's um, engagement in prevention. Um, but I think that we can't presume to know what people want because um, people are often interested and excited about new opportunities and new things for prevention. Um, so these are um, some of the um, implants. Um, and so there's the implant on the upper left. Um, and then there are some microneedle um, delivery systems um, that, are being, um, that are being evaluated as well. Um, and so I think that there is gonna be um, new options. We need to really think about this in the same way we think about birth control, is that you know, the, the pill, oral contraceptive, does not work for everyone, and that people want options, and that uh, for PrEP as we um, develop new delivery methods and new um, drugs that are available, and show efficacy for PrEP that we um, give people the options to start with one, change to another, and then um, change to a subsequent one later that might fit better in their life. So I'm either out of time or I'm not working for advancing. There you go. Um, and so um, these are just some of the um, benefits of uh, sort of the um, implantable devices versus oral dosing, which you can see in purple. The doses go uh, high, high above what we would hope would be the um, sort of safety targets um, versus the implant implantable devices um, in green, which sort of stay in this sort of um, sweet spot right in between um, uh, sort of not over shooting the safety targets, but staying above the, the efficacy targets. And that some of the um, subcutaneous or IM injections actually um, also peak. And so just really highlighting the advantages of using an implantable device um, compared with oral dosing. So at that, I will end um, and be happy to take any questions um, about any of the prep cases or um, didn't spend a lot of time on TAF FTC um, versus TDF FTC, but happy to answer questions about that as well. Great, thank you.
Before we get started on the questions, I neglected to mention in the initial announcements that it was actually Ryan White's birthday today. Uh, would have been 48. So lots of questions already, but uh, if, uh, if you come to the mic, I'll start with the uh, cards that we have here. Uh, first question, uh, do you treat uh, TAF FTC with 211 dosing? Can you use? Um, so we have not been. Um using TAF FTC for 211 dosing, I think we um, we don't have the data to support that it um, would be useful. Um, but I think now that we have the DISCOVER trial data that show that it's um, equivalent to TDF for daily dosing, um, uh, we don't currently recommend it because we don't have the data. But I think that the um, we, I would think that it would work just as well. Um, but we can't, that's not an evidence-based statement. so. Um, so we don't really offer that. So you've not used that in that sense? No. Yeah. So there's a couple of questions regarded, uh, regarding, uh, first of all, uh, no uh, cis women in the DISCOVER trial. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the question is, is whether you would consider TAF-FTC for PrEP uh, to protect uh, receptive vaginal sex. Um, so that's something that I would have a, a conversation with my patient about. and. I would um, highlight that we don't have the, the data to support that, um, that TAF, TAF FTC has not been tested in women. However, um, there's, we would expect from the PK, given that you have higher intracellular levels, that it should um, provide protection as well as TDF among women. Um, Gilead, I know, did submit some, FD, some PK um, data to the FDA to have that um, indication. Um, it wasn't ultimately accepted by the advisory panel um, as sufficient. So I think that um, if it's between nothing and TAF FTC, I think that's a very different conversation than if somebody is asking if they can switch from TDF to TAF. Well, that's, the ex that's actually the next question. Do I need to switch my PrEP patients from TDF-FTC to TAF-FTC? Um, so I think in general I would say no. Um, we have um, in, we've actually come up with guidance, tried to provide some guidance. The um, safety data um, is that TAF-FTC and TDF work, have similar safety profiles. Um, and I think that uh, suggestions that TAF is safer than TDF has not been shown in the clinical trials. Um, you have a very small reduction uh, difference in the uh, creatinine clearance change with TAF compared to TDF, um, but um, that there's not a more, it's not a safer drug in terms of um, clinical, uh, clinically relevant events in any of the prevention trials, and that it's gonna be, um, generic in uh, probably mid-next year, um, and that there's going to be a tremendous uh, difference in the cost associated with it, and I think we generally shy away from considering cost, but um, I try to encourage my patients that we have a lot of safety data with TDF, that, um, that, and then I remind them about the weight gain, and then that usually ends the conversation. <laughs> All right, we have a question at the mic. So adolescent access to PrEP is a state-specific scenario, but can you speak to adolescents who are on their parents' uh, private insurance and how they might access it? 
Yeah, so um, this is a huge uh, challenge for um, young people as they may not be out of, to their parents. And as I saw somebody last, um, actually on Monday, who um, wanted to access PrEP, his parents know that he's uh, gay, but actually think that he's still a virgin. And so he didn't want that disclosed to his parents by being on PrEP. So it's not just about coming out, but it's also about sex and um, all the complexities of sex, talking about sex with your parents. So in um, California, for example, we have um, a state law now that um, precludes uh, insurance companies from sharing that information, the explanation of benefits, um, with the, a primary holder of that insurance. And so I think that that's one example of a policy that was very helpful in supporting um, uh, adolescents now that isn't enforceable and there are, um, there are uh, penalties if that happens, but if that happens to a young person, then that can be very dramatic and um, problematic. So what we've done with some of the resources in um, San Francisco, actually we've purchased Truvada and we have a youth emergency fund where we give it to them um, for free because until we can get all these things worked out, um, because we were seeing diagnoses among young people as we were trying to get them access to PrEP, and this was a huge barrier for them, um, and all the details hadn't been worked out yet. Who, who uh, funds the, the emergency fund? Uh, we bought it, the, the, the San Francisco Department of Public Health. Um, I, you know, I um, wanted to just uh, throw out the idea that maybe uh, 340B funding could be uh, allowed for that specific use um, uh, in terms of just trying to think of ways in which all of us can access uh, PrEP yeah. for teens. And I also think that the, um, the Gilead Medication Assistance Program that is now sort of being supported by CDC, like I think I would also advocate that that should be a special carve out for young people under the age of 26 to be able to access this for free, regardless of insurance, because they do have in, technically have insurance, but that does not mean they have access. Do you have any strategies for retaining patients? We have a much higher loss to follow up compared to our HIV positive patients. Yeah, so we have, um, in many of the trials actually, there's been um, prep persistence or continuation is about uh, 50% at six to nine months. And so in most clinical settings, um, a lot of people get lost very quickly. And I think a part of it is that, you know, if you are accessing this for prevention um, and not for um, sort of disease-specific care for HIV, like you're gonna have a different threshold for how much of the hassle of going through the medical system you're gonna deal with. And I think that's what we're seeing with PrEP. Um, when we interview our patients who sort of get lost. So what we try to do is create as much flexibility as we can. So um, we have navigators that work with our patients. And so I tell them, you know, if I have a 27-year-old who has no other medical problems, he doesn't need to see a physician every three months. Like, he can come in and get his labs. I can talk to him about any clinical concerns. Um, but most of his uh, needs are going to be around adherence and, um, and support. And so that can either be done on the phone or via um, other staff who might be in the clinic. So just encouraging and requiring them to come in for testing every three months, but then all the other visits actually happen remotely. And we're capitated, so it's not that there's a loss, um, a financial loss to the, um, to the clinic as a result of using that strategy, but it actually supports individuals for um, meeting sort of their needs in a way for prevention 
that um, I think our standard healthcare systems just don't do um, for prevention. And then for young people, I think um, there's some studies from the Adolescent Trials Network that showed that um, every month visits and counseling was actually associated with much higher adherence than the more standard adult-oriented three months. And so we created more intensive support for young people um, because they are gonna be, um, so we, the epi data, those are, that's where a lot of our infections are happening and where a lot of the needs are and these unique barriers um, that are not addressed in many clinical settings. Great. Question? Oh, okay, I think you just kind of answered my question was, do you have any ideas, thoughts, strategies in terms of getting more young African-American MSM at risk on PrEP? We know they have the lowest uptake right now. Yeah, so we, um, so I think that the conversation um, about reaching uh, young black MSM and young Latinx MSM comes down a lot to like, who is the messenger, what is the message, and where are people gonna get care um, for PrEP? And I think that the, the message has not been directed towards uh, young black and Latinx MSM. I think a lot of the, the PrEP discussion, I think this is what we're seeing for trans women, is that um, you know PrEP was for white gay men, and PrEP is for gay boys and not for trans women. So these are the messages that we're sending out through the, um, through the ads, through the campaigns, and who is represented in those campaigns, who is talking um, um, about PrEP in those campaigns. And in our community, a lot of the PrEP uptake actually was not providers. That was early on, providers saying, oh, we think that you might benefit from this. A lot of it was actually people talking to their friends and, um, and partners. And in some places in San Francisco, it actually became, oh, I wanna get on PrEP because all my roommates are on PrEP and all my sex partners are on PrEP. And then it became, um, I need to be on PrEP because nobody will have sex if I'm not on PrEP. Um, and so it really was this engagement within the social and sexual networks that drove it. And that has not happened um, with uh, African Americans. It has not happened with Latinx, particularly MSM. And you know, in many ways, this is all predictable. Like this is a new uh, intervention. It's got high efficacy, but it's got high barriers, right? This is not like just HIV testing where there's been a lot of um, community-based approaches. This is all within medical settings that already have disparities, already have barriers, and that we're overlaying this into that where somebody doesn't actually need to come in for care. This is all about prevention, and so the thresholds are gonna be lower for dealing with some of those things. So I think it's an opportunity to reset and rethink how we approach it because we are going to worsen the disparities. We're seeing this in San Francisco. Um, the majority of our infections now are among African Americans and Latinx individuals, even though our numbers are going down. So we might achieve towards our ending the epidemic, but we might worsen the disparities as a result of it. Thank you. Next question. So I have a similar, I have a similar uh, concern with regards to my African American women. Uh, by several that have been had the STDs, clearly they're at risk, and I get a frequent report of, well, I've talked to my friends about it, and we've heard there's bad things with that drug. Your <coughs> slides were going, regarding the safety of it in pregnancy, the slides regarding the safety period is, are helpful. Have you engaged strategies to engage that group of individuals who have an increasing HIV risk? Yeah, I, I think one of the things that um, we, 
really need to focus on is um, you know talking to the individuals who might be sending these messages, might be able to distribute these messages to engaging with individuals. So, um, you know, I know that several colleagues who are doing work sort of through qualitative interviews and um, and doing um, ensuring that the messenger who's who's sending the message is a trusted voice. And I think for a lot of MSM, this has been their trusted friends and families who have access to that information that not all the folks who would be having this discussion have access to. So one of the things that we did, and we do a lot of online activities, so we were um, in um, like a forum, uh, online forum talking about PrEP. And like the stigma and the, um, and the, like we call it slut shaming around PrEP um, for people who are, um, you know, sexually active, um, was coming from the community, and there was there was community efforts to check that. But um, without access to the information, people don't necessarily feel like they have the tools to counterdict um, what's being said, and also medical mistrust. We can't forget, you know, when I do community work, um, Tuskegee comes up every time. Yeah. It comes up in different contexts, but like people have a lot of reasons not to trust the medical system, and we don't do enough to like um, to counteract that, to address it head on, um, and to frankly ensure that it does things like that don't happen in small in small ways when people come into clinics. And in a community with a low incidence of HIV, but a very high incidence of other sexually transmitted disease and um, lots of hepatitis C and lots of IV drug abuse, what, what level of incidence would you start treating these people with the high risk behaviors? With the high risk of what? With the high risk of transmission, like the high risk multiple sex partners and IV drug use. At what but, level would I start treating? Yeah, as we, have, we don't have very many HIV positive cases in our community. Okay. Um, but it's not zero either. And there's a, just a wildly high um, level of risky behaviors. And I just, I don't know where to jump in. So is the question when we would treat somebody for? When you would start using PrEP, like if you're seeing clusters of new infections, or do you? So I've been an advocate of, I said this at a meeting uh, with CDC and they didn't really like that. I said it, but um, I think one of the biggest ways to address some of the stigma is just to, I said offer PrEP to everyone. Um, so the idea of offering it to everyone and you know, perhaps maybe just doing the education where you um, educate everyone about it. Um, because I think that we um, are really poor at really recognizing the risk that somebody has, and individuals are also very, um, are not very good at self-assessing their risk. Um, and so I think offer it to everyone. And um, I think we're doing more harm by not getting it to the people who need it than getting it to some people who might not need it, because they might need it later and we won't know that. And they often come to our attention after that's happened, as we know people start and stop PrEP before without telling any, any of their providers. So start Monday. Yeah. So one more question if it's very quick. I guess kind of quick. Um, <laughs> so I actually agree with you, PrEP for everyone, I would put it in the water. 
if I could. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so I live um, and work in a rural, more rural environment, and access to PrEP doesn't necessarily start with infectious disease. It starts with primary care physicians. And what I found is um, patients have, have to go through multiple barriers in order to even get to someone who would prescribe it. Um, so I eventually started a research project on like educating the community about PrEP. Um, but what are the ways would you engage primary care physicians and really get them on board with the process of PrEP and HIV prevention? Um, so I think one of the things that I found providers respond most to is um, cases and examples within their, either their specific clinic or um, cases, examples that are very familiar to them about somebody who um, was diagnosed with HIV, had multiple contacts with the other primary care provider or some other healthcare system, um, had no discussions about PrEP, had no, um, may have had a positive STI. Um, and those, I think, are some of the cases that we try to use to try to encourage providers um, to, um, to support PrEP. And um, there are a lot of barriers that are not just about clinic visits um, and about other things like stigma. There was a presentation at the National HIV Prevention Conference that the biggest factor associated with willingness of nurse practitioners to, pre to provide PrEP was religious affiliation. That didn't matter which religion it was. It was any religious affiliation. Um, and that we still have patients in our clinics who get stigmatized. You know, the ICD-10 codes that say high-risk homosexual behavior. You know, there's a lot of those barriers as well. So really sort of taking that holistic approach um, with providers. Um, and I think a lot of primary providers don't have this as their purview. Um, and I think that that this is the this is the population, this is the group of providers within Ryan White that I think should be providing PrEP, that, um, that PrEP should be part of the um, Ryan White care opportunities for people because um, all the barriers for people who are living with HIV have been, many of them have been worked through for the clinical side of things um, and that, that this is a missed opportunity to not really expand it greatly within Ryan White. I think I have to stop here. I apologize that we didn't get to all the questions. I imagine you can find Dr. Scott at the break. So uh, thank you very much. Great. Thank you.